everybody is murderous in their attentions towards everybody else. They can't hold them back! Submit yourself to one all-powerful absolute sovereign. Thomas Hobbes, the great 17th century natural philosopher, called this... Leviathan! I like shapeshifters, only a lot more into useful folk. And nothing can kill them. Hey, Hello the internet and welcome to the Lands of Leviathan podcast. A member of the Agora Podcast Network. Where we discuss political science and popular culture. As always, hosted by Peter Sleeman and Brock Rodden. Today, we are going to be continuing with our series on ideologies. Um, We're going to be continuing our discussion from last time of conservatism and liberalism. And looking at how it's applied in the world today. But first... Um, after we launched our episode on the basic assumptions of these two ideologies, one of the things we stated outright in both the description and the first couple of minutes was that we did these first because they are the primary ideologies in the world today. And that immediately raised, uh, I don't know, concerns, questions, a little bit of vitriol from our devoted listeners uh, and uh, you know as the internet is good at doing and um you know they were they uh, they raised an interesting point saying that oh th- this is very eurocentric this is you know conservative and uh, liberal issues are rooted in america and europe and australia and canada but when we go into africa asia latin america the developing world we're not they're not conservative or liberal they're dealing with other things statism and anarchism and whatever, you know, Maoism, a whole bunch of other isms and other ideologies. And I thought that this raised an interesting point because it showed a distinct uh, distinction between the way that Brock and I conceptualize the world and the way that our listeners seem to be doing it. Um, So it raised a good opportunity for us to clarify. Brock and I are academics. We are scientists. So what we attempt to do is categorize the world. We attempt to look for basic rules by which all things can be um, agreed to or, you know, all things can be predicted on. So when we develop a theory of conservatism or a theory of liberalism, we're saying this is the way we think people will act under these circumstances with these assumptions. Now, that's not specific necessarily to America or South Africa or Egypt or anywhere else in the world. That's specific to humanity. And that immediately gets you guys starting to shout at me because you're like, fuck you, man, don't tell me how I should act. What you're often talking about there is what we call party politics, which is also, then this is why these things are so confusing because party politics is also labeled conservative or liberal or Marxist or sometimes anarcho-capitalist or whatever, green politics. Um, and these party politics have ideologies intertwined in, through them which is also what Brock and I are talking about. But the issues that these parties deal with are unique to their own countries. So, for instance, here in Australia, where I am, um, the Labour Party, which is relatively liberal, and the uh, Liberal Party, which is, again, confusing because they're actually conservative, um, deal with very different issues from what the African National Congress in South Africa, which is a very far-left-leaning party, um, not far left, center left. Center left. Um, we'll deal some with allies who are far left in. Yeah, like the South African uh, Congress of Trade Unions. Um, but also their no, opposition. I'm thinking more like the Congress, the the, the Communist Party. But yeah. anyway, continue. Um, but the, who and their opposition is the Democratic Alliance, which, by American standards, would be considered very left of center. By South African standards, I think they're probably considered a little bit right of center. So you see the issues that we get into, guys, when we start discussing this. And this is why it's important for Brock and I to maintain academic clarity. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Because when we talk about ideologies, we're talking about theories. We're talking about theoretical um, matrices, matrices that we apply onto the world in in order to try and predict behavior. Which is Which, by the way, is what this episode will be about. Exactly. Um, which is why when we say conservative, we immediately understand conser- a conservative as somebody who assumes that people are inherently violent and conflictual, 
and believes that the past should be preserved. Now, those two assumptions are humanly universal. You will find these people in China, in Botswana, in America, and in Germany. Uh, liberals believe that human beings are inherently good and that progress is inherently good and will lead to the betterment of mankind. They believe in equality and individual freedoms. Now, those are things that are also universal to some people in all societies. That's how we label these people. And of course, Brock and I in the last episode did this at a very high level because it's once, if you try and categorize every single person in the, on the whole planet into two things, you get each camp being roughly, you know, 3.5 billion people, which is not very academically sound, which is why we have other ideologies that we also classify people with. And it's why we have ideologies within ideologies. So within conservatism, we have neocons. We have the far right um, Tea Party in America. We've got the Avia Beer in South Africa who want to create a you know Boer state. We've got a whole bunch of people all over you know all over the ideological spectrum. But what Brock and I are attempting to do for you guys is not to provide you with a textbook, but to provide you with uh, maybe a foot in the door of political science through some fun political culture. So I think the end the result of this rant is stop shouting at me on Facebook. God. <laughs> no, uh, you, yeah. but don't forget to mention the the reason we took the deliberate approach um, that we did last week, which was that we don't want to suggest some common historical narrative to the development of all political ideologies that exist um, and by, by and large, we also don't want to do it in a textbook fashion. So we don't want to label them, categorize them, uh, or make them, uh, too easy to, 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 to block, to put into, into neat blocks. Mm. Um, so when we start off, when we had to start the episode, we, we're going to go with the most, uh, we could say historically used, or not necessarily the most historically relevant, but the, the ideology that gave us the most to work with, to speak about the other ideologies. So we, mm. we did not, we weren't presupposing that because, that by starting with conservatism, that it is the father of all ideologies, and that's where the history of ideology started, and that's where the history of politics started. That wasn't the intention of our approach. Mm. It was just, if we're going, if we've got a list of ideologies to get through, we're going to start with one that was rather powerful philosophically, mm. um, and one that certainly had a relationship with the other ideology we were talking about in that episode, which was liberalism. Yeah. So it was sort of a convenient coincidence that these two um, stuck out in the episode we talked about, and it's not an indication of any historical relevance. Yeah. There's no trend. We're not trying to proclaim some uh, trajectory that uh, the world's political history started ideologically in Britain with <laughs> John Hobbes. <laughs> exactly. Thomas Hobbes, sorry. And I think... Uh, uh, just as a final point on this on this little rejoinder, um, it's interesting, you know, the, the use of the word primary ideologies. It's it's because Brock and I whittled them down so much to like two or three assumptions at their base. And you know, yes, European conservatism did start. Well, at least it's academic tradition. See, we already have to start putting um, stuff in <laughs> disclaimers. Yeah, um, did start with Thomas Hobbes and you know Edmund Burke and all those. But let's quickly jump across the world to China, where we had two ideologies that were, and still are to a certain extent, conflicting with each other. One is Daoism, and the other one is Confucianism. Now, Confucianism teaches respect for the family and respect for authority, respect for tradition, respect for your ancestors. Now, it's fairly easy for us to now see that that is definitely a what Brock and I would define as a conservative tradition from an academic perspective. But not, it's not conservative by an American political standard because it's a completely different political way of looking at the world. The, the policy outcomes are completely different. Um, and Taoism teaches um, a whole other set of beliefs, you know, respect for bureaucracy, respect for the state government, but also belief in science and progress. Now, that's what is that, a mixture of conservative and liberal ideologies, which, of course, you can totally have. So th this is more confusing than it seems. But what I want you guys to hold in your mind all the time is that Brock and I are first and foremost academics. We don't really like party politics that much, which is also why we don't talk about it, because it's uh, it's messy. <laughs> it's, it's, and it's, and it's, bo it's boring and it's, um, it's too contextualized in time and space. It exactly. doesn't allow us to gen generalize and create the theorems we use to apply universally. 
Yeah. Um, so it's fascinating if you are of that um, smaller pocket of political scientists to focus on a particular area, which frankly is very useful because you get to apply a lot of what we know to specific contexts and hopefully make the world a better place. But it's not necessarily like that for all of us. And uh, yeah, that's not what this podcast is about. Yeah. Brock and I are big picture thinkers. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, we, and we find it more, more <coughs> useful to compare grand theorems to things like Star Trek and Hogwarts and <laughs> The Matrix. Yes. So we're going to get into our discussion and maybe that will also provide some more light on how our thinking is working. And we're happy to have you along for this journey. But before we do that, let's do our podcaster of the month again, which uh, because Brock and I are churning out podcasts faster than we have been, <laughs> is still uh, Dominic Perry with the History of Egypt podcast, which is uh, interesting considering what we just discussed. Um the, obviously, the history of Egypt is incredibly important. Um, it's important for the growth of European ideas. Um, it's important for the growth of European ideology. And it's a fascinating history, whether you're considering it's political, it's economic history, or it's mythology, which has always been one of my favorites. Um, so go have a listen, because I think it's a, it's a good podcast. And also, all, obviously, available on Acast and Agora. Of course, if, you, if you're more interested in, t- in politics, keep listening to this podcast, but for the history of Egypt, that's definitely a relevant one. Oh, uh, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to scare everybody away. Um, <laughs> so, Brock, what are we discussing today? Uh, we're looking at the application of conservatism and liberalism, yes? Yes, well, between the two of us, we found it quite tough to, uh, to sort of nail down in a simplified and summarized form these two ideologies of conservatism and liberalism. So, um, but we nevertheless gave it our best shot in the last episode. Yeah. Uh, so today we want to move on a bit from the history of those ideologies and see how they apply to the world today mm. and uh, maybe make them a bit more context specific. Um, but the major goal is not that. The main goal, I think, today is what the question we should ask is what would a liberal stance be on issue X or what would a conservative stance be on issue Y? Mm. Um, so let's take a few of the popular trending issues in global politics and see what uh, how the different ideologies would approach them. Yeah. And uh, I think we're, we're going to be making allusions through this uh, to popular culture as well. What would a liberal stance be on um, stopping cloning of people with midichlorians in the Star Wars universe? Uh, <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> how do liberals feel about clone armies? Because I don't think they'd be too happy about that. About damn clones. Uh, Why? I think I think they'd be quite happy with uh, experimenting with technology to make the world a safer place. Not the way the not the way the Republic did that clone army because they didn't have any uh, free will. Uh, they were conditioned, so their individuality was stripped. Yeah, and I can see more the the purpose of that army being for the security of the nation, for the preservation of the Republic, as a, a rather conservative ideal. Yeah, and then a free market uh, capitalist would just be like. No, man. Let the market decide the value of clones. Fuck you. <laughs> yeah, if they found a legitimate product that you sell in the military market, then why can't they be free to clone humans? <laughs> exactly. Uh, but before we get derailed, so let's start with our first um, issue. And I think it's important to note at this point that we're jumping from the beginning of these ideologies right through to our present time, which jumps over a period of at least 500 years of issues that have shaped these different ideologies. So uh, just keep that in mind as we discuss them. But what was our first one, Brock? Um, well, I was thinking about the three biggest trends in, in the world system at the moment. Um, so let's have a look at, I think it's sort of an easy one. Let's go with global climate change. This is actually such an interesting thing because what you've just said has sparked an, an idea in my head is that this is a political issue, definitely. Yeah. But I don't think that it's an ideological issue. Um, And this is the reason why. Science in general operates on a more conservative scale than it does on a liberal scale. Um, A good scientist is always skeptical. A good scientist is always doubtful of results, of things that he or she is seeing. Um, And and global climate change, uh, we don't call it global warming anymore, we call it climate change, is, is a scientific thing. You know, scientists in the 1970s began to notice that 
you know, average temperatures across the world were starting to rise and wondered, hey, why is this happening? This is weird. Uh, Or is it weird? I don't know. Let's have a look. And that's what they did. And they started to play around with the idea that perhaps the greenhouse emissions caused by industrialization were causing the earth to warm up and change the global climate. Now, that is just a, that's just, it is, it either is right or it's not right. There is no scientific gray area. It's just, uh, is climate change is happening. Everybody, you know, the scientific community agrees on that. The question is, is it caused by people or is it a natural phenomenon? And they did studies. This is what scientists do. And then they presented this information to politicians. And for some reason, this went from a political issue because all of those issues that you've brought up that a conservative would have are, I, I, I think, are more pragmatic than anything else, which is why conservatism is so valuable in general, because it, it tends to be a bit more pragmatic so when it comes to issues like this. Like, okay, scientists, you said that this is happening. Uh, we need all the evidence. So show us all the evidence. And that's, uh, to my knowledge, that's exactly what happened. We got they got together a panel of I think at the beginning it was a panel of two hundred of the top climate scientists in the world to do under the auspices of the UN and the international bodies to research whether human beings were responsible for uh, for climate change. And they came back and they said, "Yes, we are. It's our fault, guys. Uh, we're doing this. Uh, we're assholes." I think that there was one dissenter, one one scientist who dissented from that. And his response was he wasn't sure. Um, he wasn't uh, a- absolutely persuaded by the data. And at that point, I think a good conservative says, cool, yep, that's that's good. Now we need to develop policies that uh, that, that sort this, this problem out because it's a threat to everybody. Um, and I think a, a liberal... A liberal response is... Just, I mean, a liberal response might probably run away a bit more with the science and just... Instead of you know taking a slow and steady pace, might uh, be like we have to kill all the cows because uh, they're making methane. Everybody stop eating meat and uh, could, you know blow up the nuclear power reactors. Stop digging coal. Everybody go stop. You're all crazy. Um, <laughs> so you know I mean, but that's what that's not actually what happened. What happened was that the and this is this is where our interesting difference comes in because Brock and I now have used our ideas of what conservative and liberals should have done based on our predictions of those ideologies. But the issue is, is that it wasn't ideology that determined the outcome of this question. It was other factors, party politics and economics that played a huge factor. And as well as national security, uh, international infrastructure, um, and, you know, a lot of sometimes crazies on the side. But, um, you know, you know, I would say, and now I hate to do this, but the, I mean, well, the two largest producers of carbon emissions in the world at the moment, I, just correct me if I'm wrong, Brock, are China and the United States. Yeah, I thought um, you've got a you've got a bunch of cows in Australia that are doing some damage as well. Uh, yeah, but not as much as China's fucking factory farm. China's industrialization is, but I mean, you've got two countries that are on opposite sides of the of the political ideological spectrum. One is communist, the other is heavily uh, liberal and conservative and capitalist. So why do they continue to do the same thing? And it's largely because economic growth, industrialization, and different different um, companies' interests in those countries are more important to the politicians at the time then are the ideological issues that are being raised. So that's why I said, like, this is not necessarily an ideological issue. This is very difficult for us to predict from an ideological stance, I think. Um, I don't really agree with you because I think it is entirely an ideological issue. Um, it's Uh-oh. just that the ideology, the ideological or the application of one's ideological assumptions are not strictly political. Mm-hmm. They are, they, they, you know, they take into account the values that one places on economic freedom, for example, or productive capacity and manufacturing, um, or quality of life, you know, being able to drive an 8-litre V6 engine that uh, that produces all these greenhouse gases. Um, so it's not, I would, I would say ideology definitely applies, it just doesn't strictly apply politically. Mm. Um, and when it comes to international relations, uh, you know, a specific branch of, of politics, 
Um, ideologies take on a funny start. They take on a funny, um, we don't want to say evolution, but they mutate a bit. So you can have countries or nation, nation states like China and the United States on different sides of the political spectrum or ideological spectrum, finding some sense of common ground. That's not to say that they have the same ideological beliefs. That's just to say that some of their precepts overlap. You can still say, you know, China is very, a very much socialist communist state, um, very far left leaning, not even leaning, it's running as hard as it can towards the left. Mm. And, uh, and traditionally as a state, um, as an international actor, the United States is, is quite conservative. It's, um, it's right leaning. Mm. Um, yet, yet on the issue of, of global climate change, they both find, um, some common ground in protecting their, economic capacity mm. and preserving the economic status mm. as the top performers GDP wise. Mm. Um, so it's not to say that their ideological status changes. It's just as to say that in international relations, it's understandable that there is sometimes overlap between seemingly contrasting countries. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I see what you mean. It's, it's not a, what, so it's not a necessarily a conservative liberal issue. Yeah, there are other ideologies at play. There are other factors. Yeah. There are other thinking yeah. um, things. That, and one of which is the strange connection that has that, that exists in today's world between conservative ideology and capitalism, um, or what yes. you know what we will call free market capitalism, which is what we have in America. Um, and it is a very difficult relationship to describe and to explain and to use as a political scientist or as an, eco- as an economist. Yes. And I think, I think it's because those goddamn economists, fucking Milton Friedman, asshole, um, <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, they kind of took the roles, uh, you know, they kind of took the reins away from political scientists to a certain extent. Indeed they did. Um, yes. And they began to talk but this about is, behavioral. But there's an, interesting, there's an interesting historical trajectory behind that. Um, and it could even be an episode on its own is how mm. since ter- national territorial integrity became so prominent, um, and it's, but it, um, it became so prominent for a specific purpose in the 1950s. And that was to protect a new value in the, in the international system, which was the value of human life that nobody wanted yeah. the repeat of the, of the world wars. So they thought the only reason that the state has sovereign sovereignty and national integrity is to protect human life. Mm. And when that happened, it meant that there were less wars. There was less conflict. There were more numerous conflicts, perhaps, mm. but less loss of life. Yeah. And when things kind of, when we hit sort of a relative, relatively peaceful stage in uh, global development that it was national in, international politics stopped being about wars and conflict um, they were still there but economics became more important and prosperity mm. became more important and things like gdp and growth rates and production yeah um and that's when uh, that opened the door to economists becoming the new flavor of political theory yeah and that obviously then Ray, you know, an, a, a good econo- economist will say, we're not ideologically driven. And to them, I say, shut the fuck up. You 100% are. The economists who tell you that they are not ideological, um, are just lying because they, they say it a lot, but they are. Uh, they will have the largest fights between, um, the, uh, the economic thinking of, um, John Maynard Keynes and Milton Friedman and Hayek and a whole bunch of other thinkers. Uh, the Chicago school hates the other school. And there are all, <laughs> there are a lot of different uh, ways of looking at the economy. But I, one of the things that happened, and it's very strange that this happened because if there is any ideology or political ideology that should have grasped free market capitalism, it should have been the liberals. Because it allows for much greater individual freedom. But they did grasp it for a bit. Conservatives were very wary of it in, in, in the early days. Um, but then they kind of made this pact. I think it was that kind of switch from yesterday's liberals are today's conservatives because that liberalism in economic affairs came came along with today's conservatives and that's what that's what you have today and now you have the strange alliance between the conservative political ideologies and the liberal economic ideologies which is why we have parties like here in australia where the liberal party they're liberal economists but they're socially and politically conservative um but i think the reason that the liberals you know the true liberals the political liberals 
are against free market capitalism, or at least calling for greater regulation, is because capitalism did two things. One, it created the greatest amount of prosperity that the human race has ever fucking known, um, and, you know, created one of the, you know, the best times to be alive. However, it also made a lot of people incredibly wealthy and kept that money in those pockets. You know, at today's world, people are wealthier now than they ever have been, but also the gap between the richest and the poorest is the highest it's ever been. Are you sure about that? That, that the, that inequality has never been high? Because if I had to imagine like an Egyptian slave and pharaoh, I'd say that equality is pretty high. Um, yes. So there have been longitudinal studies. And that's actually what's interesting is that that's the first reaction that many people have. Like, oh, that's crazy. I mean, surely the, you know, medieval kings were hugely wealthier than the, you know, peasants that they ruled over. And to a certain extent, yes, but you have to take into account population growth. Um, yeah. And you have to take into account the ratios of wealth. Now, kings in the medieval times are not living not anywhere close to the quality of life that most of our listeners have. Even those listeners in South Africa, and I'm assuming that you have, I mean, you've got access to internet and you're listening to a podcast in your spare time. So that allows me to make certain other assumptions that you're probably getting fed pretty well. You've got access to clean running water. Um, you get medical care. Uh, you probably have a house most of the time. Um, and your lifespan is probably predicted to within 80 years or so, you've already kind of outdone most kings in the midi, you know, Middle Ages. Yeah, they, they probably yeah. had like a gold plate, but they weren't that wealthy. In You know, if you were to take all their wealth and actually turn it into a dollar value, they wouldn't be considered that wealthy. Um, and the peasants obviously had like next to nothing. And then you have to take into account population growths. But yes, um, from historical trends, today's world and I mean, like comparing it back to the pharaohs is difficult. So let's just look at it in the last hundred years. We are more unequal now than we were a hundred years ago, which is no. But but I want to play with the with the more extreme claim that we've never been more unequal because there's another point that you must have is the concentration of wealth. Mm. So even if there were, even if the gap between the richest and the poorest person, or the richest and the poorest people, throughout human history, has been greater at some point before now. That's not to say that the highest concentration of wealth existed at polar opposite ends of the spectrum the way that it does today. Mm. So sure, there are people, there is, like you said, you know, if people listen to this podcast, for example, there's a certain uh, clump in the in middle class uh, society, but the amount of wealth that exists at the top end of the spectrum and the dearth of it at the bottom end, the number of people living without any wealth whatsoever, without any position, without any value, uh, without any material value, is is far greater than it ever has been. Sure, you might not have had anything as a peasant in the Middle Ages, or even as a slave, um, but the number of slaves that existed, in, you know, in, with the, the ratio of, of non-capital owners to capital owners back then was relative, was smaller than it is now. Now the capital owners are so wealthy that they can't even count it, Um and and the number of people that are in that position that they have so much wealth that they can't count is far is far greater compared to the ratio of the number of people who have that much wealth to those who don't have it compared to years gone by. Exactly. Do, do, am I, I like this is a developmental issue, uh, and this is this is one of the greatest paradoxes of our world. And um, I feel we are swaying a little bit from ideology, but this is where the conservative and liberal tenets are moving. This is why liberalism is so against large-scale capitalism. Is because on one side, human the human race is doing the best that it is has ever done. As a percentage of the population of the planet, there are less people in poverty, and that's taking into account a sliding relative scale of poverty than there ever have been in human history. So the poorest person today in Europe is still far wealthier than the poorest person 200 years ago in Europe. Now, obviously, you also have people in today's world and a large percentage of people who are, or a large number of people who are living, you know, what we call subsistence lives. They don't actually have any wealth. They're scratching their living out of the dirt, essentially. But the percentage of those people, as opposed to the larger population, is smaller now than it ever has been, which is an amazing thing. 
and largely due yeah. to largely due to China lifting so many of their population out of out of what we call abject poverty. However, yeah. it's and and that's one that's a, a thing that a lot of free market capitalists and again political conservatives will tell you. But on the other side of that, there is an ethical problem when you have so many people at the top, the Rupert Murdochs, the uh, Bill Gates. I want Bill Gates, you know, he, he donates a lot, so he's not necessarily such a bad guy. Uh, we but, like you, Bill. We, <laughs> we don't like your software. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're happy with you, Bill. You get the uh, Lance Leviathan stamp of approval. <laughs> but, but, but please fix Microsoft Word. <laughs> <laughs> but the, you know, the Rupert Murdochs of the world, who are so wealthy, it's it's incomprehensible how fucking rich that motherfucker is. Like he has, he makes more money in a year, in then then the GDPs of some African countries. Now, but we'll we'll take but, your sponsorship, Rupert. Yes, thanks. If you want to buy us, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> we'll change we'll, we'll change our opinion. We'll change our ideology. Yeah, we will Rupert. totally. Um, but you know, he could buy out, a, a, you know, a, a quite a few countries if he wanted to. And in my mind, that's a little bit obscene. In fact, that's not a little bit obscene. That's completely obscene. However. That being said, you also have to understand that this wealth creation has only been possible because of free market capitalism. So you have to find some kind of balance, which is where... Which is where these ideologies come in. Exactly. Um, and I feel like... And this is the second trend that we should talk about is, is global financial regulation. Mm. Um, the, be, be given, given the tricky relationship that exists between um, economic ideology and political <laughs> ideology, that being that We've already established in the last episode how individual freedom is valued by both conservatives and liberals. It's just that liberals value it a bit more. You would tend to think that individual free and free market economics belongs to the liberal camp more closely, which isn't actually true. That conf- that confusion it plays out in its full capacity when it comes to global financial regulation, because liberals believe in the in the value of, of the individual human being, they see the state as a primary tool to provide the well-being of that individual, or at least allow them the best opportunity to reach it for themselves. Whereas a conservative would see would would not want the government or the states to interfere too much, and would rather leave the individual to their own devices. And if that they aren't fully actualizing their capacities or aren't reaching their full potential then a conservative might say that that person um, is living out the consequences of their actions, that the only people they have to blame is themselves, and they don't necessarily look to the state to fix that. So when there are abnormalities in a free market system, um, and just to repeat it, the free market system is one that conservatives typically campaign for, the modern conservative does, um, then when there are abnormalities, they're not so inclined to fix them. They first want to delve into how, how is these abnormalities caused? Is it possible for us to regulate them? Um, can these systems actually be fixed? And if they are fixed, will it benefit anybody? Um, and because it's so difficult to measure, to answer those questions with accurate data, um, it, political conservatives and by definition or by extension, economic liberals, find it very difficult to argue in favor of financial regulation. They mm. would rather allow the financial system to continue with its innovative and what they call progressive products that are able to um, fill up all the gaps in the financial market in order for people to make more money and for the, the system to continue growing. Yeah. Whereas if that system, from a liberal, from a political liberal perspective, if that system is not serving all the people of the planet, all the people who take part in that system, then the system is broken. And not necessarily broken beyond repair, but just damaged to the point that it needs to be regulated. Mm. We need to have the abnormalities curtailed mm. so that it can, they can be reined in, readjusted, um, and not allow it to to um, mutate beyond its own health. Mm. So we don't want to see... Um, and, you, and this is where I'm, you know, people like me who might identify politically as a conservative... Um, identify economically conservative conservative as well um, and might even call ourselves politically liberal for on this issue when it comes to making sure that no system that no international system no fi- no um, state system no and certainly no financial system should ever grow beyond the ability 
of human society to function and to grow in a um, in a healthy manner. And by growth, as a liberal, we would say growth means the betterment of all people, the improvement of everyone's lives. Yeah. They don't necessarily we don't we don't want to just take the financial system, break it into pieces, divide up the wealth, and give everyone a thousand dollars, and that's the end of it. Because um, that you know that would be killing off a system that's been that's been feeding you. That's you know biting off the arm, the hand, the feet. Mm. It's more it's more a case of how do we make sure that the system doesn't continue to spurt and sputter funds in all the wrong directions? Mm. How do we make sure that the leaks don't occur to such a great degree? How can we tighten up the system so that it runs more efficiently? Mm. Um, and if that takes certain um, if that takes the intervention of the state. Um, and if that requires certain po- complex policy making, then as a political liberal, uh, we we should be endeavouring to um, to procure those kinds of policies. Mm. And this is again, it's another example of today's uh, today's what was I saying? Today's conservative is yesterday's liberal. You know that the the, um, the conservative the conservatives are still on the freedom of the individual. And they, they take into account people in business. You know, these people should not be uh, restricted from acting in their best interests. They are individuals. You shouldn't restrict their freedoms. Liberals have moved on to a certain extent. They've, they, they've gone towards a social side of things rather than looking solely at the individual. They've started yeah. to look at social equality. Um, yeah. and, and this is something that this is obviously the conflict that we're having now. And this plays out in our popular culture as well. Um, I, there's a very good example of this in um, uh, Battlestar Galactica, where the uh, you know the, the the group of humans that are fleeing, they have to decide you know how are they going to deal with um, the fact that they need to produce staff, you know they need things, and they've got some ships that are producing like water and food and things like that, and the one of the ships needs um, some other product from one of the other ships. And uh, they're not getting it. So they decide, and it's one of the waterships, and they decide they're going to go on strike. And the the central question of the episode eventually comes about of, should, is the individual freedom more important than the health of the society in general? And that was a, that's a, almost an old question that we're now asking again. But it's not, should we sacrifice the individual for society? Now it's how much can we allow one individual to accumulate before we need to ask that person to start redistributing some of their wealth to people who haven't been as lucky. And again, that's a liberal tenant. You know, people are lucky, whereas in conservative circles, people work hard. Um, and I think that that's, you know, that comes across now very much in this financial regulation argument that we hear so often. It is. There are many issues that come out of it. I mean, that's why I think people, we've mentioned this before, why people enjoy apocalypse films or apocalypse um, um, genres or mysticism so much is because it gives liberals the idea, uh, or even conservatives, the, the chance to imagine what society would be like if we got a shot at redistributive justice. Yeah. Um, so we don't necessarily easily find it easy to justify taking away from someone who has too much to give to someone who has too little. Because as soon as you, it sounds nice in one case, like a Robin Hood story, but as soon as you generalize that principle, then you suddenly don't want to be the one who's got too much because Mm. you find that you actually have a lot more than many other people do and intervention, artificial intervention would take that away from you. So to make it personal um, in in an apocalypse form, that we get to see how everybody would have an equal shot at gaining what would what, what they could rightfully claim is theirs because it's mm. sort of a free fall, you know, some natural disaster or some uh, zombie plague or outbreak or virus outbreak or whatever has equaled the playing field, and now everyone gets a chance um, to sort of self to, to regulate their economy on a, on a more communitarian level, <laughs> and uh, and you know, and people find that fascinating, which is why we have probably I think arguably some of the greatest apocalyptic films coming out around. To, between 2005 and 2010, um, when you know financial regulation was in disarray, uh, when global financial, when, when global climate change was was really hitting its peak, um, when the the when international conflict was also getting a lot of attention, especially in the Middle East, with the U.S. involvement there, you know, we saw films like um, The Day After Tomorrow, 
we saw uh, 2012. We saw the Book of Eli. We saw The Road with Viggo Mortensen. Those, I mean, those are great, you know, apocalyptic. And the day after tomorrow is such an interesting one because it actually combines these two issues, and it's a liberal fantasy. Um, because, you know, scientist comes up and says, hey, global warming is real. Conservative vice president is like, uh, nope, it's not. Fuck you, scientist, go away. Uh, yeah. scientist, you know, it's like, okay, well, that's, I can't do anything. Turns out the scientist was wrong about his timeline and it's, it's actually starting the day after tomorrow, which <laughs> obviously that's the movie. Um, and then, you know, America now needs to be evacuated. Um, and I, it, the thing I love about uh, this that movie is that if you look at how the what happens to the world, like Africa is just fine. Nothing bad happens in Africa. It, like the whole of Africa might like get a bit of snowfall, but it's just like it's okay. Don't worry. Like Johannesburg is just good to go. Um, but then you know the Americans need to get into Mexico, um, and in a you know in a case of. Uh, Oh, it's so ironic now that the Amer- Americans need to get into Mexico. And um, in order to do that, the vice president forgives Mexico's debt to the United States. Um, and that's it's such a lovely idea, but it's also insanely crazy when you realize yeah. what that means. Um, America it, has it, given it, a huge amount of its money to Mexico in the form of aid and um, have been you know, allowing Mexico to not pay it back for a very long time. And I mean, I know that there are other issues around aid, but now that debt has been effectively just written off and America is now in economic shambles because it just got owned by an ice age. So like that doesn't necessarily <laughs> help. And now what you have is a whole bunch of Americans in Mexico who just like, yeah, we just lost everything uh, and our government has no money. So, but, yeah. but that touches on, on another global trend that I think is, is easily polarizes the conservative from the liberal and that is m- migration um and all to all forms of migration you know economic or economic migration uh, or labor migration and from to the extreme to, to the sort of political asylum seekers and then the extreme refugees um where it, everyone's got a certain it, it it lays out another spectrum for us we we can see people who live in a country that is perhaps desirable for whatever reason to live in, having to deal with people coming to it for those very reasons, to live there desirably, and perhaps they were pushed there, perhaps they were forced there, perhaps uh, they're just choosing a better place to live. Mm. Um, but at some point, the host country, the people living in the host country, have um, at, they, they enter a no zone where the, the, they start putting up barriers. They say, okay, at this point, we're not able to take you in anymore. And the liberal becomes a conservative. Yeah, and this is a this is a really interesting um, case because it's a very fascinating example of this, which is uh, from Aho, which is South Africa, and um, South Africa has a South Africa being the largest economy on the continent, um, and the, definitely the largest economy in its region in Southern Africa, attracts a huge amount of both illegal and legal immigration. Um, people coming from places like Mozambique to seek a better life. People fleeing from places like Zimbabwe to, you know, get out of a fucking famine state led by a crazy man. Um, and people coming from places like Uganda and Rwanda, um, fleeing actual conflict. So, you know, South Africa has a lot of this. And in recent times, they have been met with a huge amount of, you know, what has been become known as xenophobic violence, which is, um, you know, hatred of foreigners and uh, violence against them. Um, and it's interesting that that happens in a country like South Africa because South Africa is, you know, you would consider South Africa to be a liberal country. Um, and anti-immigration is usually a conservative, conservative idea. Um, but maybe South Africa is not as liberal as, as we like to think it is. Maybe, uh, you know, that people are a lot more conservative than we, than we give them credit for. Just because South Africans fought off apartheid doesn't mean that they're necessarily liberal. Um, yeah, it's quite a strange issue. I almost said funny, but funny is the wrong connotation. It's a strange issue in that, um, <laughs> you know, when, when we sit here, well, when I sit here, because you're over in Australia, when I sit here in South Africa and you listen to people or you read the news about asylum seekers or, or people in first world countries having to, um, help out refugees, especially, coming from the Middle East and Syria into Europe, for example, it's like, now it's getting all this attention. 
And now suddenly, you know, after, after decades and centuries and millennia of migrants and refugees and even slavery occurring all over the world, suddenly it's a big issue now because the Austrian has to host a Syrian. Um, so there's a huge amount of Eurocentrism in, in the media, in global media. Um, and when we get a sense like, you know, as a South African, we, we, I wouldn't say we used to, but we're kind of familiar with foreigners coming to work here and seeking a life here. And now suddenly, um, um, migration has become an issue in Europe. And you kind of go, well, what are you complaining about? You know, people deal with these issues. They've been dealing with these issues for, like I say, decades and centuries. Um, but now suddenly you're having a cry about it. And the, the sort of flip off response is, you know, what do we call this? We call these first world problems. Yeah. You know, you, you can't have your entire, four-story house to yourself anymore because a starving family escaping political crisis and violence is coming to live in your country and you should actually have to share your stuff. Yeah. Um, that's just a first-world problem. Mm. And so not only is there a huge amount of Eurocentrism in the global media, but also that as soon as we say that, I'm using South Africa as, as an example now, as soon as we say, and we go like, you know, we would never be like that. We would totally open up our arms because we're such a liberal country. And then your stuff starts getting, I won't say taken, but your space starts getting taken up, you have to share it, then you, then people start becoming a little more conservative. Like, whoa, whoa hang on, hang on. This is, this is actually a serious issue. Now, I don't think we should be allowing this. And the, the ANC government is typically quite liberal, becomes completely conservative and starts threatening to, uh, to deport in, um, any illegal immigrants without question. Mm. They've got, um, security checks at every police station. They go like full tilt into Nazi mode of if you're not if you if you don't deserve to be a get the hell out of the country. There's yeah. no chance at you know perhaps considering changing their status legally, um, perhaps trying to uh, give them a chance at, re- at establishing a, a community for them where they can work and live. Um, there's just there's zero <laughs> appreciation for, for for foreigners of the South African government. Um, so it's like they you know they pay off all this lip service to um, to actually being liberal and being welcoming. But uh, as soon as as soon as there's a threat of xenophobic violence that makes Africa look really bad, then we yeah. start you know, then we start banning immigrants. And I think you know our, our models of conservatism and um, liberalism provide a very good way of predicting why this is going to happen. And it's it's interesting when you speak to a political conservative and somebody who's in, into party politics. If you spoke to an academic conservative, they'll give you different answers, hopefully. Um, but they'll say immigration increases crime. Uh, no, it doesn't. There is very little yeah. evidence to suggest that immigration increases crime. Uh, yeah. Immigrants come and take jobs. No, they don't. There is also very little evidence to suggest that immigrants take jobs from citizens of a country. Either they create their own jobs, which is great for the economy, or they take jobs that nobody's doing, which is also good for the economy. Um, yep. Okay, so then you're like, well, so so what's the problem with these immigrants? And the next answer is, and this answer, although I've, I I don't agree with it, I find it persuasive. It's a fear of cultural degradation, and I think that this is what um, Europe suffers, but I don't think it's what South Africa suffers. So Europeans are very afraid that their cultures that are what uh, you know thousands of years old at this point are being lost to this influx of foreign ideas and foreign concepts. And for Europeans, it's very scary because they have successfully managed to keep their cultures intact and internally driven, basically since Europe became, you know, since, I don't know, the creation of the modern state um, during the Treaty of Westphalia. You know, they always define themselves against the Ottoman Empire. And they managed to keep that relationship fairly static. Now they can't do that. They can't stop the ideas of the other coming in and threatening their culture, which is very scary to the conservative mind because it means a a destruction of the past. It means you have to let go of your traditions and maybe you have to assimilate and accumulate new things, which is why people get scared of multiculturalism. But if you look at somewhere like South Africa, I think that the, the, you know, this issue was raised well by the movie District 9, which deals with not only like apartheid issues, but it deals with these issues of the other group. So you have in District 9, you've got these aliens that are being forced to live in a compound by themselves because the humans don't want them integrating into their society because they're so different that they don't see a way for them to become part of that society. But there's another issue in South Africa in that 
there might be economic problems with people coming in, given that South Africa already has a, you know, 25% unemployment rate. Um, and I think the ANC, the African National Congress, which, although it says it's liberal, is at this point fairly uh, corrupt. So its ideological drivings are suspect at the best of times. Um, is, you know, very happy to kind of push the violence further and further. <coughs> um, yes, it's a very sensitive issue. Migration is highly politicized and it's very sensitive. It's, uh, it's incredibly sensationalized. Um, but it's so human. It, you know, the, this is so close to, um, to people and people's lives and seeing people and they, and respecting their value that uh, it needs to be managed very carefully and I think everybody should examine their consciences and form an opinion of what they what they think should be done about it. Um, especially when it comes to some arguments that's, you know, that state that you have to put your borders up at some time, um, even though you know, everybody deserves a, a right to life before they deserve a right to citizenship, you, you should let people in before you consider whether or not they should live. Mm. Um, that's... Uh, sorry, the other way around. But the... The, there is a minor argument that says by letting people in unnecessarily, by just welcoming everybody inside, could create more problems, and not the problems of poverty or crime or um, you, know, stealing, you know, joblessness or whatever, but more problem of there isn't an ability to, to provide for these people here. And I'm thinking now about some horror stories in Central Africa where there's been a, a refugee crisis for decades mm. that the global media refrains from commenting on, um, where it's, you look at the borders of, of Kenya, look at in and around the Great Lakes region, the DRC, even Southern Sudan, and you see how by welcoming refugees into your country that doesn't, isn't always the best option because they might have to be put into camps. They might have, you know, they require food and resources and water and healthcare that in order to be treated, to be looked after. Mm. And those resources aren't necessarily in the possession of the host state. Yeah. Um, they, you know, they, they are the United Nations resources that can be provided for, for these people. But to just op- open your arms and welcome in everybody who's asking for a home could put your country at great risk because it could make it, you know, the sub, it could be, make it the host of a very, Unkept, unhygienic disaster zone where people are not being treated humanely. Mm. Um, so they need, to, you know, there are very pragmatic logistical concerns that need to be taken into consideration. Um, I'm not saying that they should be turned away at the border, but if 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 temporary me- measures are upheld and say, you know, there's a six month um, host policy, by which time the refugees need to be transferred to a more permanent camp or whatever the situation is, it's uh, those considerations need to be taken need to be accounted for um so it's a, it's a very it's a very sensitive issue and you know your ideology can help and your ideology can hinder uh, your the formulation of your opinion there and just keep in mind that the way that we form our opinions politically is something that we might not think about all the time but it very much affects how we treat other people and uh, and that's the most important thing that politics is about and I think, you know, on a final note on that, I mean, I, th- I really think like District 9 is such a good movie for this because it, it deals with these issues, you know, exactly what you said. These aliens, I mean, the aliens kind of just rocked up, so there wasn't much you could do, really. Um, and they were brought down to, you know, to South Africa and they were in Johannesburg and everything was fine. And, you know, then they were put in this camp that eventually turned into yeah. a slum. And the, yeah. the camp was supposed to be temporary. But, I mean, yeah. like, all, there's also a huge opportunity. I mean... Obviously, you got fucking aliens, guys. Like, there are yeah. aliens that you can communicate with. That obviously, they know faster than light travel. What are you doing? Yeah. Like, what's going on? And I know that yeah. the, the, it's an absurd example, but these are issues that th- these things can be transposed to the world that we live in today. Um, now, look at what's going on in Australia, where I am. And I don't know how many of you know this, but so Australia has a policy at the moment, which is called turn back the boats. Australia does not allow any refugees or asylum seekers that have come by boat onto the mainland which is fucking is tr- which is insane it's atrocious it's, it's, it's just insane inhuman. 
because they say no they need to apply for asylum and it's like yeah you know it's super easy to do that when uh, your yeah. home got blown up in Aleppo and uh, you tried to get to Damascus but your dictating asshole leader tried to kill you because you happened to be of the wrong ethnic group uh, so I quickly got on a goddamn boat to try and escape with my family you asshole and on my way over here I could use my mobile phone to log onto your website and quickly make the application through the web you know through the internet Exactly. Like that's just super easy for me. But what? Now, I'd like to stick the Prime Minister in a canoe, go drop him off on the island, and paddle back, and we'll turn you around. Exactly. Now, what the, what the, what the Australian government does is they take all these people and they put them into what they call detention centers, which, let's not fuck around, are concentration camps, okay? This is happening right goddamn now. They put them in these detention centers and they basically sit there. But these people are not, uh, you know, th- they're not uneducated. They're not homeless. These are employ. These are employable, and this is just from a strictly economic perspective, which is not even you know half of the perspective. We should be looking after these people because they're human. But the Thank fact you. is, is that these people could also pay for themselves because Australia has a terrible dependency ratio. It has a very high percentage of people who are elderly and a very low percentage of new. Um, you know, people in the workforce. So it, it needs doctors, lawyers, engineers, tradies, all these people that have skills that are in these asylum seeker groups. Now, an injection of that kind of, uh, aptitude into the economy, fucking awesome. Um, is, it's, you know, they could pay for themselves. Now, obviously, there are huge practical issues that need to be sorted out. But when you, this is why I, this is why I'm phrasing this as a liberal concern, because the liberal concern firstly needs to be these are people. I mean, the liberal concern is first these are people. They need to be looked after. How do we do that while also looking after our own people? Not uh, oh, we I don't want to deal with this, so we're going to put them in a camp. Um, you know, we just Australia is for Australians, which is crazy in in and of itself, seeing as the country was colonized. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, like these are, these are issues and I, I agree with you, your, your political ideology. And again, we are talking about your political ideology from an academic perspective of the basic assumptions of human nature and justice and not your party <laughs> politics. <laughs> um, they determine your first reaction to these questions. And they determine your first reaction before you've even thought about it. Because if you remember in our first episode, these are these are shortcuts that your brain uses to make decisions. So I think what's important is that if you are a conservative or if you are a liberal, come to that conclusion because that's who you are. That's you know that's part of your upbringing, and then question those assumptions. Say, wait, hold on, is that true? Is is what I think actually true? Um, because it might not be. And are there some other truths I'm missing out on that could add context to my opinion and it might morph my opinion a little bit? Um, and like, you know, gives you an opportunity to grow as a person, as a thinker. And exactly. uh, it allows you to act better as a human. So, um, shout and out to Pope Francis for his preaching on mercy this year and welcoming <laughs> in all the, as many immigrants as possible. Um, maybe we could try and be a bit more like him. Yeah. And, uh, but it's, it's totally true that we need to be more aware of our decision making processes and our opinion formation. So that exactly. we aren't the most terrible people we try to be. And to make sure that uh, we end this podcast by, you know, I don't want people to say that we're bi- I'm biased towards liberals, although I think I am. Um, for <laughs> If you are a liberal, I want you to think about the fact that capitalism has created all the wealth that you are using to spread your ideas of anti-capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> and if you are a conservative, go and just, you know, climate change is real. It, it's caused by us. Just accept that. And also, um, maybe think about reading something on redistributive wealth. It might be a good idea. And, and have a conversation with each other. Stop shouting at everybody. Thank you. <laughs> Says the guy shouting. I'm shouting. <laughs> Just don't shout at me because I'm very, I'm actually, I sound confident behind this microphone, but I'm not. Every piece of criticism is like a, a stab in the heart. I get so, so, so upset. <laughs> uh, thanks, so guys. Definitely, definitely go watch District 9. It's the best film we could recommend in this episode. That's one of the, our favorite parts of of, of uh, nerd culture. Yeah. Uh, one of the best movies you could watch if you're into what we are into. I'd also recommend uh, The Big Short. It was called The Big Short. It's on Netflix. And it's, not, it's not really nerd culture, but, um, you know, it's more shot like a documentary style, but it's a brilliant film, very well done. 
We recommend that if you're into financial regulation. And for the life of me, I cannot think of a single good global climate change movie, so just give up on it. 2012 was crap. Uh, Day After Tomorrow was even worse. 2012 is not about climate change. It's about the sun shooting neutrinos into the Earth's core, which is heated up. That's it. That's the the point. Oh, yes. Sorry, forgive me. I didn't pay that much attention to the film because it was crap. (laughs) Did I mention that it was crap? (laughs) Oh, my God. That movie is terrible. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, climate change is real, guys. Just accept it, okay? It's not, this is not up for argument anymore. It's a real thing. Just lobby your governments to start fucking switching over to green energy. Like, that's all we need to do. It's, it's not, this is not difficult at this point. <laughs> Thanks for listening, guys. We hope you enjoyed that. If you did not access this via our website, landsofleviathan.com, then please visit the site to find other materials such as all of our other ACOS tracks and articles. And if you'd like any updates on the website, please don't be shy to subscribe to our RSS feed that is also there. We also look forward to hearing your comments and feedback. Send us an email at landsoftheviathan at gmail.com. It's L-A-N-D-S-O-F-L-E-V-I-A-T-H-A. And you can also find us on Facebook as well as Twitter um, under the Lands of Leviathan podcast. And if you didn't listen to that directly, then you can find it on Acast or any Acast supporting app such as iTunes. Hope you enjoyed it, guys. Thanks so much.